Hear ye, hear ye. We're recording from a secret location. Where are you, Joel? Um, I'm in a bunker. <laughs> um, me, I'm I'm in my bedroom, um, in my drawers. Yo, nobody wants to know about your drawers, bro. <laughs> hey, you know what? Here at the Sixth Sense Apart, we're all about transparency. <laughs> all right, we, we, I want to. I want to let people know that hey, man, we're not perfect. And we make mistakes too sometimes. You mean like uh, some, some timing issues we had on the weekend? Oh yeah, okay, yeah. So that's why we're <laughs> recording on the phone, everybody. Um, so basically, what happened was uh, we were recording at the Toronto Library, the, the Toronto Reference Library, and we basically ran into some problems with uh, the rooms we were recording in. So we didn't have much time to do intros. So we just uh, jumped straight into the interviews. Uh, that's just the misimpression for you. They saw so, brother. They saw me. No, they saw me coming in, man. And and, and I saw how they were <laughs> looking at me. And from then, the, the lady, uh, I mean, she stepped to me and I said, "Look, man, I'm not about that. I'm not about that. Don't don't stereotype me." They didn't, they didn't see Joe was with me at the time. And Joe would have came in with his privilege and then would have straightened the whole thing out. But you know that for next time, right, Joe? Uh yeah yeah you're you're a great storyteller bro. <laughs> uh, I'm just throwing shade. No, it, it was interesting. We had some interesting interactions with the staff. Right. Shout so, out to so. shout out to the boy who had our back though. Oh yeah 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 yeah. So yeah, I had to holler at the man them uh, to make sure that everything was Christian. <laughs> okay, so. Darnell, why don't you uh, tell the listener what they're what they're in for and and why you thought it was in a necessary uh, conversation for us to have? Okay, so this this conversation is about Sir Johnny McDonald and the statues, and basically looking at within Canada uh, removing the statues and symbols of uh, men who are affiliated with uh, the residential schools, where uh, you know the Indigenous people were, um, some would say, um, oppressed under um, their white leaders in Canada. So I, I, brought, I decided to uh, bring in uh, the, the head of the history department at Tyndale University and Seminary, uh, Brad Fott. So Professor Fott's one of my professors when I was history major at Tyndale, uh, and he was glad to come in, and he was really awesome. And so. I thought it would be good for him to kind of walk us through the history of Sir Johnny McDonald and how do we do history from an ac academic perspective. Uh, okay. And so, Joel, why don't you tell, what did you like about the interview? Um, I mean, I, I learned a lot. I mean, you know, my, my extent of history courses was limited to what I was forced to take in high school. Um, and I was probably too busy trying to flirt with the girl in front of me than paying attention. So <laughs> my knowledge of uh, Sir John A. McDonald was, was limited. Let's just put it that way. Um, I, I, I learned so much, to be honest. Uh, I, I really appreciated the context and even, you know, building up to who he was. Like, I mean, I'll Right away, I was like, oh, yeah, Sir John McDonald, first Canadian Prime Minister. Okay, what else? I don't know anything else. Like, going into that, that's literally all I knew. Um, you know, he's on our money. 
<laughs> right? Like, well, well, so, well, actually, well, not anymore. But that's oh yeah, that's conversation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I just found, you know, he was like the professor was so knowledgeable. Uh, you know, we kind of, no matter what we threw at him, he, he really, you know, the questions we asked, he always knew his stuff and really knew how to bring it back and around and, and really contextualize his answers. So, um, I found it really informative and, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a history buff in any sense, but when something like this comes up, I want to be able to make an informed decision or a formed analysis on, on what's going on. And I thought he did a really good job of, of contextualizing everything. Yeah, and then, yeah, he seemed pretty balanced and didn't seem to lean to towards either side. He was just telling you the history, the good and the bad. Yeah, uh, so I, yeah. Th- I think that's why um, everybody will, will enjoy it. Um, yeah, the politically incorrect guide to Sir John A. McDonald. So uh, let's get it rolling. And with that said, Anthony B. Mitchell, our wonderful producer and DJ, whenever we run a function, roll the clip. If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying. Is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted. Is it overstimulation? Welcome to the Success Okay, Professor Fock, can you uh, give our audience a background on, on yourself? Certainly, certainly. Uh... Really enjoy being here. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, I'm a professional historian. I've been at it now for about 20 years. I grew up in Alberta and did my first degree there. Then I went over to England and did a master's degree at Oxford and then came back to Canada and did my PhD in history at U of T. Taught at a few different places. U of T, Mount Allison down in New Brunswick, uh, University of Guelph, University of Windsor, and then landed permanently at Tyndale University College about uh, 15 years ago. And I've specialized over the years in 19th century Britain, and in particular issues of, of empire, politics, uh, religion, and certainly in the last decade or so, I've spent a fair bit of time writing, writing biographies of prominent people, both men and women, in, in the latter part of the 19th century and into the 20th century pertaining to imperialism and empire. Okay, wow. So uh, I, before we maybe get into the, the nitty-gritty of why we're here, mm-hmm. it, we just released an episode on, on church and state, mm-hmm. and, and so I thought uh, maybe you could just give a, a quick um, summary or, or comment on maybe some of the historical blending of church and state, especially in you know England and, and that kind of the blending that's, I, I would say, at least my opinion was that's part of why they had a separation of church and state within the U S constitution. Um, yeah. Good, good question. Big question. Uh, one, one way to, to think about it, certainly in the Western context is to go back to 8th century, 9th century, the era of the Holy Roman Empire and, and France, or amongst uh, people that used to be known as the Franks. And when you find Charlemagne, for example, being crowned uh, Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope, you see this symbolic and real entwining of church and state. 
So Charlemagne, you may recall, saw himself as a Christian king, mm -hmm. that to be a king in 800, and he was crowned on Christmas Day, uh, to be a king in 800, uh, on one hand you're king, on the other you are entwined with the church. So this idea that church and state melded is a very old idea. Uh, and certainly in the West, it's an idea that comes all the way down to the 19th century and is with us today in certain ways. For example, in Britain, the church establishment remains. Mm -hmm. The Queen is the supreme governor of the Church of England. Uh, now, secularization has taken place. Not that many people go to church in England anymore, but, but technically, constitutionally, this entwining of church and state uh, is at the center of, of the British polity. Now, the United States, one of, one of the things in which the fathers of, of the United States reacted against was the exclusivity, the privileges given to the established church. So as part of, of, as part of both the revolution, but more specifically the writing of the Constitution and so forth, was this rejection of, of religious privilege. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it becomes a constitutional separation. But that's, that's an anomaly. Uh, mm -hmm. mo most of the time in the West, church and state have stayed entwined. Sweden has an established church. Mm -hmm. uh, Canada had this debate in the 19th century. The Anglicans in Upper Canada thought they had an establishment. They assumed they did. Mm -hmm. They certainly wanted one. And then it was untenable because the Methodists said no, and the Baptists said no, and the Congregationalists <laughs> said no. And eventually the, the provincial legislature said no. Um, a nice example is the University of Toronto. Mm -hmm. It's chartered in 1827. Uh, and like all Anglican universities, certainly Oxford and Cambridge in the 19th century, you had to be a confessing Anglican to go. Uh, at Oxford, you had to be a confessing Anglican. You could go, but you couldn't get out unless you became one. Um, Interesting. So here in 1827, uh, that principle is carried over. So the King's College is founded as an Anglican institution. Uh, and there's great debate over whether or not that fits the province. Because remember, the provincial profile in the early 19th century is an increasing number of Americans, loyalists, coming across the border and settling here. Now, some of them are, are Episcopalian or Anglican, but a lot of them are not. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you end up in the 18 30s and 1840s and 1850s, having a great struggle for, in a sense, the way in which Upper Canada will govern itself. And one of the key features of that is how will we educate our young? Mm -hmm. uh, so in 1850, the University of Toronto opens as a non-sectarian institution. It's not Anglican. So the Anglicans say, well, what will we do? Well, we'll just separate off into what becomes the University of Trinity College. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then it moves moves along in that way. Okay. Yeah. Well. Well. Okay. So, you know, given that you know you study imperialism and so forth, uh, it's a hot topic right now in regards to looking at our historical figures, mainly uh, Sir John A. Macdonald. Mm. Uh, can you give us like a brief history for our, our listeners of who Sir John A. Macdonald is, especially the non-Canadian listeners? Who's like, right. who's this crazy white guy? Uh, that they're trying to remove <laughs> statues all over the place. 
Well, for non-Canadian listeners, maybe even for some Canadian listeners, I don't know. You can, <laughs> but, but but uh, Johnny McDonald can be seen in some ways as as the George Washington of Canada, in the sense that Johnny McDonald is the singular founder. There are lots of other people involved, of course, but if you're thinking in terms of who founded the country, there's a recent biography of Johnny McDonald called "The Man Who Made Us." biography by Richard Gwynn, two volumes called Sir John A, or no, sorry, just John A, the man who made us, by Richard Gwynn. Uh, and in that sense, he's the singular founder. Like a lot of, like a lot of 19th century immigrants, he came from the British Isles. In his case, he came from Scotland. He was born in 1815 uh, in Scotland, immigrated with his family as, as a five-year-old. So even though culturally uh, he was a Scot or a Scotch, as they used to be called in the 19th century in Canada, uh, he was in just about every way that shaped him uh, a Canadian. So he grew up in Kingston mm-hmm. and just outside of Kingston back in the days uh, when Kingston was a significant, though small, city, as all Canadian cities were in those days, uh, in, uh, in what was called Upper Canada, uh, the forerunner of both Canada West and then Ontario, uh, became a lawyer. Uh, and in those days, you didn't go to university to become a lawyer. You, you articled. You went right into a law office and you were apprenticed essentially as a lawyer. So he's a practicing lawyer uh, early in the 1830s as a very young man. And he practices in Kingston, he practices in Napanee, uh, all around the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kingston is tiny, as I said. It has maybe a population of 5,000 people in those days. But it's important. It's important geographically, it's important politically, it's important militarily, because uh, that will be the place where Upper Canada, uh, in a sense, defends itself with. Uh, old mm-hmm. Fort Henry, and then eventually the Royal Military College. So in the 1830s, he becomes uh, prominent locally as, as a lawyer, and then uh, becomes a municipal politician, and then he becomes a provincial politician in the old uh, Upper Canadian House. And then after 1841, the Active Union rejoins, in a sense, rejoins Lower Canada. Canada East or Quebec with Upper Canada, Canada West, Ontario. Uh, and then he becomes, he becomes a Canadian politician after that. Because after 1841, the province of Canada, uh, the forerunner of, of Confederation Canada, is established, which is, which is wholly a colony of, of Britain, but increasingly operates uh, as certainly semi-autonomous gradually in internal matters, uh, and that will stay the case in various ways all the way through the 19th century. So he becomes quite prominent, quite well-known in the 1840s, first as a defense lawyer Mm -hmm. in the 1830s and 40s, criminal defense lawyer, and then he becomes much more involved in uh, corporate law and titles, that sort of thing. But he becomes well-known, he's popular. McDonald's in the 1840s and 1850s 
uh, is Kingston's best known politician, and he's well loved in Kingston because uh, he he is funny, he's approachable, uh, he's uh, quick with the repartee. He's he's a drinker uh, in an age when just about all public figures, all public men, drank heavily. Uh, there are literally hundreds of pubs in Kingston, uh, wow. and and he becomes a kind of epic drinker. Uh, in fact, uh, all the way down to the 1860s. Um, but society is not is not as censorious about that as it later becomes. Um, uh, there's a lot of drinking that goes on in public places. Elections are accompanied by drinking. Um, the sessions of the legislature are accompanied by drinking. So in retrospect, we always think of John, John A. MacDonald, the, the drinker, the drunk. Mm -hmm. uh, he wasn't, he wasn't, simply that and he wasn't so unlike a lot of his peers but but uh it be do it does become it does ultimately become a problem politically and otherwise right yeah. right of, of course so now in regards to the uproar with uh him and the indigenous schools and his relationship to it uh can you talk more about that certainly uh, so you may you may recall that that uh, John A or Sir John A as he becomes right around the time of Confederation uh, is the first Prime Minister. The BNA Act, the British North America Act, uh, is the successor to a couple of previous acts of the British Parliament. So, and all of those acts, whether it's the Royal Proclamation of 1763 or the Constitution Act of 1791 or the Act of Union of 1841, all of those acts give certain kinds of responsibilities, crown responsibilities over indigenous peoples or, or Indians as they were called in those days. Mm -hmm. So the BNA Act does the same thing. So when the BNA Act is enacted in 1867, responsibility for Canadian Indigenous peoples falls to the federal government. So what had been a crown responsibility, the establishment of reserves and so forth, falls now under the Canadian government. Mm -hmm. So even though Sir John A. had, had known Native peoples all his life uh, and, was, and was friends with some, there's a, the, he had a famous relationship with Peter Jones, who was an Ojibwe, uh, who became a Methodist, became quite prominent in the middle years of the 19th century. They were quite friendly. Um, when, when John A. Was, was practicing law in Napanee, um, he got to know the Tyendinaga, uh, who are right, right there. Uh, so he's, he's very familiar with, with certainly the Aboriginal population in what is now Ontario after 1867. As Prime Minister, of course, he now has to take ultimate responsibility for the welfare of the Aboriginal population, not simply, of course, in Ontario or Quebec or the Maritimes, 
But as the country expands, 1871, British Columbia joins. Uh, the Northwest Territories, as they were called then, in between Old Rupert's Land, Old Hudson's Bay Company land, uh, those lands are become under the control of the Canadian government after 1870 when they're sold, uh, when the Hudson's Bay Company sells them. Uh, so all of that territory with all of those Aboriginal peoples now fall under the constitutional control of, of the Canadian government, which means that Sir Johnny Macdonald takes a direct role in that, not only as prime minister, but he, he accorded himself uh, a number of other positions, other cabinet positions, uh, which, which, gave him, which gave him, in a sense, personal control over some of these portfolios, including, uh, including Aboriginals or, or Indians. Mm -hmm. so, so what was the goal of, of this whole um, policy in regards to having um, rule over the Indigenous people? Like, what was their goal? What were they trying to get out of it? Or, yeah, yeah that, that, that's, that's the million-dollar question. Um, and that's certainly the controversial question in our own day. In their day, and I know it's very difficult to sort of take yourself back to what it is they're trying to achieve and what the context is and what the expectations are and what the assumptions are. But in their day, it's a combination of opening up territory for conventional agricultural settlement. So, so hence the, the treaty system, the cession of land by, uh, by native peoples to the crown uh, in the form now after 1867 of the Canadian government is one of the objectives. So the Canadian government wants to put an increasing amount of land under agricultural settlement. The other part of it, the other part of it for the government is that, is that the cultural assumptions were that native peoples were not going to be able to cope with the onrush of, as was always used in this period, civilization. They were not going to be able to cope with uh, the growing population, the, the advance of agriculture, the sheer disproportionate population numbers. Uh, so part of, part of the impulse of, of the government in this period is to offer a form of protection. Uh, now, it sounds paternalistic. It, it was paternalistic. Governments are always paternalistic, whether then or now. So that's not really much of a criticism. Mm -hmm. um, but but uh, the, the impulse is twofold. One, open up land for settlement. Two, offer some measure of, of protection against the, the hard edges of the, of the settlement project. Uh, whether that was in Ontario in the first instance, or whether that becomes uh, the West gradually in the 1870s. Okay, wow. So then, like connecting the dots in regards to how, because, you know, everybody's pretty mad about 
indigenous uh, schools. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, and just how I guess the kids were treated, um, and uh, the assimilation and 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 the pushing of of the Christian gospel on them. Uh, what do you have to say to that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, in our time, in our time, the the assumption that the state and the church acted together to to forcibly assimilate to strip away from canadian aboriginals their history their language their culture their identity these all resonate uh, in an extraordinary way in our own time and identity politics is the name of the game right now so anything that retrospectively or historically has damaged that clearly has great resonance at the time at the time almost nobody thought like that of course so it's it's difficult to to impute to such people in our view a kind of sinister intention so whether whether it was the government through the auspices of, of the Indian Act or whether it landed in the lap of the various churches who were given the task of establishing the schools and running them, so the Roman Catholics and, and the Church of England in Canada in those days, uh, as it was the Presbyterians to some extent, uh, almost no one who would have been given the assignment of establishing residential schools beginning in the 1880s would have thought that they were doing the wrong thing. And no one around them in society would have thought they were doing the wrong thing. They're now easy marks. Yeah, hindsight's 2020. Yeah, they're now very easy marks in our culture to say they all did the wrong thing. Um, even the Supreme Court Justice, remember, uh, Chief Justice uh, Beverly McLaughlin, uh, said a few years ago, uh, uh, the residential schools, etc., participated in what can only be called a form of cultural genocide, which is an extraordinary claim right. by a non-historian and so forth. But nonetheless, <laughs> um, uh, there are Just certainly a lot of people who who want to say yes, that's exactly what happened. Uh, but at the time, and this is this is this is almost the totality of the argument. Uh, that at the time nobody thought that, and they didn't think that way because their assumptions about what was for the common good, the assumptions about what it was that this society was aiming to do. Uh, there was also there was also the fact that the Canadian government and the Crown before the Canadian government, uh, the British Crown, did in fact take a more capacious, softer, gentler, paternalistic view towards the Aboriginal peoples of their territory than was seen south of the border in the United States. Uh, the Indian wars in the United States were clear, they were calculated, and they were wars. Mm -hmm. They were they were presented that way, they were pursued that way, they were executed that way. 
there's really no equivalent in Canada to that. Um, yes, there's plenty of paternalism. There's plenty of assimilation. There's plenty of intention to to create out of the population of Canadian Aboriginals uh, Westerners in the sense that we want these people to be able to function in Western civilized, and I put civilized in quotes. You can't see me doing that, but I'm doing that. <laughs> uh, in, in Canadian society. But, but uh, that, that system was one that took place in lots of places around the world. But, but Canada does not declare war on, on uh, Aboriginals in the same way that was seen south of the border. I uh, find some, I mean, I'm very libertarian oriented and I'm very um, critical of government in general. And, and one of the things that I find ironic for the, the people who are, are criticizing um, in, indigenous schools um, is, I mean, this was essentially government forced assimilation. And, and had they done something in a more voluntary manner, um, probably a lot of the outcomes that we see that are negative may not even have occurred. But why I find it ironic is most of the criticisms, you know, towards pulling down Sir John McDonald's statue and these are very, oh, let's use government force. And there's, there's like the lack of acknowledgement, you know, from an economics perspective, whenever government intervenes, there's unintended consequences. And to me, this is a primary example where the motivations are pure. So are so many of the people today who promote socialism with, I would say, an ignorance to the history where it's failed. And so they're, they're kind of hypocritical because they're not looking at their own motivations going, well, these people actually had good motivations, but the outcome didn't achieve that. Like trying to assimilate um, the natives to Canada within this new Canadian culture is something that that would be good to help us all live together. Now, obviously the way they did it was as they called it a cultural genocide essentially without maybe whether they knew it or not, they were trying their what they were doing was going to erase this culture. And so, I mean, if you were to yeah, this might be a little bit of a deep hypothetical, but if you were to say looking back, what what could they have done differently because clearly the American option as you pointed out like through wars is way worse because you're killing all these people right you're removing right. them altogether as a form of assimilating two population groups um versus almost trying to do something via an olive branch um but because you've done it by force and i'm sure there was so much cultural animosity to begin with i, I mean me and darnell were talking before how many of these kids went to the schools kind of hating the white person who's teaching them. So, you know, when students hate their teacher, it's not a productive environment. Um, you know, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> hey, how, how have you experienced such hate? No, I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, if you were to look back and just kind of maybe high level, what are the, you know, are there any big things that you would say, okay, these approaches or these um, things that they instituted in the schools that just really were catalytic for, for such the detrimental outcomes? 
Yeah, I mean, you make you make a number of of interesting and and relevant points there. Um, certainly, from the standpoint of government intentionality and and social engineering, history is littered with examples of of big institutional attempts to force change uh, that that go deeply awry. Um, it was Lenin who said, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. Um, that's V.I. Lenin, not John. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the socialist, uh, communist. So the, there's, there's an assumption by, by those who would engineer change that some people will be hurt by it. But ultimately, uh, in that particular view, the outcome will be positive. So the, those, who, those who were behind the establishment of the residential school system, for example, understood that there was going to be a, a social and linguistic and cultural cost uh, borne by Canadian Aboriginals. Mm -hmm. But in their view, in terms of modernity and constructing this new country, and paving the way for what was seen as essentially the future. Remember, the 19th century is the great age of capital P progress. And the residue of that is with us in certain ways today. Uh, the old idea, the, the Whig view of history, that every day uh, that passes is somehow an example of a better day than what passed before. Uh, so, so the cultural imperative of the time was was one of of onward and upward, constant progress, industrial progress, social progress, electoral progress, uh, in terms of uh, democratic reform. So the ball just keeps rolling, and in the middle of that, in in this vast territory that has fallen progressively under the control of the Canadian government, with this tiny population, remember Canada's population in the 1860s and the 1870s and 1880s was three to four million. It's tiny. It's, it's, we have that in Toronto it's, now. <laughs> yeah, it's half of Toronto, the whole country. And 1870, Manitoba enters, 1871, BC enters, 1873, Prince Edward Island enters. The Canadian economy in the 1870s and 80s is not very good. Yeah. It grows at about 1% a year. Immigrants come here and take a look around and go to the U.S. Mm-hmm by the thousands. Wow. So McDonald, in the midst of this, is thinking of various ways in which to make Canada more attractive. And one of those ways is to begin to open up the West. Mm. And, and Vancouver Island has been a colony. The colony of British Columbia has been established. They are now the province of British Columbia. But in between is a vast territory, half of Canada, essentially half of modern-day Canada, that is populated overwhelmingly by Aboriginal people sitting on a vast 
agriculturally rich territory that if you can convince people to settle in, we'll build a country. Mm-hmm. So one thing he's doing is he's implementing the national policy to try to create a Canadian industrial base, which he does. And then the other thing that he starts to really think about when he comes back to government in 1878 is to build a railway, which the Americans have done, which the Russians have done. Everyone's building railways in the latter part of the 19th century. So build a national railway. Well, that's going to put, that's going to put agriculture and, and potentially certain forms of industry right through the Aboriginal heartland, right through the middle of it, the Plains mm-hmm. Aboriginal heartland. What do we do? Yeah. The government asks that question. What do we do with Aboriginals if this is what we're trying to achieve, which on both sides of the house, as it were, both government and opposition, people are more or less in agreement that this is what we need to do to build the country. Mm-hmm. So arguably it was the best decision they thought they could have made. There's no real alternative reality. Yeah. That, that, so to go back to your original question, I think, yeah, which- what else could have been done? Well, the Americans supply one option. Which arguably is way just, worse. Just <laughs> subdue, subjugate, and, and essentially, essentially eliminate, if possible, to pave the way for settlement. Canadians don't take that approach. It's not as violent. It's not as harsh. The outcome, however, is about the same. Mm-hmm. Reservation system, residential schools, uh, agricultural settlement, building of the railway, which is complete in 1885. Uh, Canadian immigration does begin to tick upwards in the 1890s, especially after about 1896. You have something on the order of 200,000 people coming to Canada. Today, we have about three to 350,000 immigrants every year coming to Canada in a population of now 36, 37 million people. In those days, you had 200,000 people coming to Canada every year in a population of four. Yeah. So the challenges were immense. And for the government, one of those challenges is how do we treat our Aboriginal population in this context? How do we, in a sense, create conditions for them to, to thrive and operate in this new Canada? And their assumption was they could not thrive and operate in this new Canada if they weren't educated in English, if they weren't uh, adoptive of the cultural norms that were absolutely part and parcel of the period. So, I mean, changing gears only slightly, um, you know, I think of this public debate around his statues and whatnot. There's, there's so much of what I call the poor man's historian's opinion. Um, and I kind of want to get, I'll, I'll preface my question a little bit more, but I want to get your feedback on how you interact with that uh, in the classroom. And, and the reason why I'm, I'm interested in that is because 
you know, you look at so much of public discourse right now, public debate is people using their, you know, Google skills Wikipedia. to find what? Wikipedia. Yeah, Wikipedia <laughs> to to how can I support my position rather than how do I understand this situation? Because like mm-hmm. all the things that you've described in terms of laying out the context for the decision that was made with regards to residential schools, in my opinion, changes the way you critique those schools because it was motivated well. It had a bad outcome. Do we hold those people accountable for genocide because their good intentioned things had bad outcomes? I mean, it's not, it's not like we can compare this to the Holocaust where they claim good intentions, but clearly it was at the, you know, intentionally killing people. Um, so, you know, how does this, the, the poor man or the semi-educated historian who thinks they're probably more educated coming into your classroom? You know, as a professor, you know, what do you, do you start your classes differently? Because I think of, you know, you've been doing this for 20 years. You've gone from the era where most of your students probably came in with a high level of ignorance and knowing they had a high level of ignorance versus now you have a population coming in thinking they're, they are not knowledgeable, but really they're highly ignorant. Um, just in terms of probably the materials you're about to teach. So I'm just curious how that's changed. Maybe, you know, the way you teach, the way you preface things and, and how that culture of your classroom has changed. In history, context is everything. And something like what Wikipedia provides is on one hand, excellent because you can immediately get your hands on particular pieces of information. Uh, when was Confederation? Bang, 1867. Trivia question, questions, right? <laughs> the problem with that, the problem with that is that it, it militates against the, the deeper running of just about every contemporary issue. So in 2018, no government, and properly so, would advocate a system that would have any intersection with the old residential schools. But a hundred years ago and more, the idea that residential schools were going to create the kind of the kind of normative culture desirable for everyone in the country was something that just about everyone advocated with with obvious differences being such as um, the constitutional provisions for for the french language uh uh in in quebec obviously and and uh for schooling in other places, and that would become a big constitutional issue. Remember, in the, in the British North America Act, the only ethnic group that is, that is offered any, any kind of protection um, were Canadian Aboriginals. Um, the constitutional protections are accorded to language, they're accorded to religion, Catholic and Protestant, uh, but in ethnic terms, only to Canadian Aboriginals. 
So in, in contemporary debates over, over this issue, and there's so much that goes into this, the fact that in most, most social measurements, Canadian Aboriginals uh, fall behind other Canadians, uh, whether it's levels of education uh, in particular, uh, but also general health um, and so forth. Um, and, w- and when some of these things come across our screens or we investigate them and we read about the fact that, that something as simple as a water supply on a reserve is contaminated and that people in that sense are living in third world conditions, we can hardly, we can hardly believe it. And it, it does properly strike us as, as shameful in a country as prosperous uh, and as advanced as this one. So, so sorry to interrupt, sir, but like, why do you think that is? Because me as a black man, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I've been taught my history and it's been pretty rough. But then when I look at aboriginals, it looks a lot rougher. And I, I'm curious to why would you say that is? Yeah, it's, this, this is a really difficult question to to mm-hmm. probe. I mean, par- part of it, part of it is the reservation system itself, which, which both preserves and marginalizes Canadian Aboriginals. Part of it is the way in which there are something like, I think, 600 different bands, native bands, Aboriginal bands in Canada. Some, some reservations are really small in, in the hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. So, so just basic uh, opportunity cost, basic uh, economic drivers for things like sanitation and water and so forth are extraordinarily difficult to maintain economically, financially, in some of in some of the far flung reserves, and often what we read about are examples on those reserves in those in those places. Um, the 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 Indian Act, as it as it was written and as it comes down to us now, restricts what Aboriginals can and can't do in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that has cast a long shadow over, over the way in which Canadian Aboriginals have been able to sort of take control of, of their lives, sometimes in very basic economic ways. Um, almost 50 years ago, when Pierre Trudeau was prime minister, uh, there was a great debate uh, by the Liberal government at that point in time as to whether or not the Indian Act should be phased out. That, that, that Trudeau, of course, one of his calling cards uh, as, as both a politician and a, and a kind of political philosopher uh, was, was a total equality. That all Canadians, French, English, and everyone else, absolutely equal. So the great enlightenment ideal. Mm-hmm. So one of the things they considered was, was uh, the, the ending of the Indian Act. So as to not 
have Canadian Aboriginals live in this in this particular kind of privileged way, privileged in the sense of being outside the normal run of the Canadian constitution as it was in those days. Yeah. Living on reserves, all, all of these, all of these sorts of features. And, and it was heavily debated. Uh, and ultimately, ultimately, uh, the government stepped back from it when the pushback against its, its, um, its ending came principally from from the Aboriginal community, that that it was seen as too radical a move, that it would be too too harsh a step to take to go from the world of the Indian Act into this world of full equality. Well, part of the outcome of that is still this sort of uneven, asymmetrical relationship between how Aboriginals can live as full Canadians and how they can't. Uh, and, and we see this come out in various ways, including, including education uh, in, the past, in the past few years. As well uh, as crime? Yeah. In regards to the incarceration rate? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right, so. uh, what a, my, um, I was out in BC visiting my uncle, and you know, he's talking about they give money or buy, build a house for you know, on a reserve for, for Aboriginals, and they literally start stealing wood from their walls to build fire. And there's this, I mean, for me, being economically oriented, you know, the things that I would recommend towards third world countries, it's all, there's a lack of property rights. And freedom and property rights are so fundamental for prosperity, for growing, for, you know, if you don't own your property, why are you going to invest in it? And yeah. so this, yeah, I mean, I would argue these, Reserves are essentially a socialist utopia, another example of, of that collective ownership of everything failing. And, you know, because the individual people have to leave the reserve and, and essentially leave their community to start owning their own property. And so for me, the recommendation would be transitioning away would be, you know, dividing this property collective amongst everybody. And if they want to live together, great. If they want to move out or sell it elsewhere, like, you know, whether you have reciprocal agreements to maintain the community, but, but bring the ownership beyond the collective. Yes. I mean, the, the, the question of, of property rights, uh, uh, economic incentives, control, ownership, um, there's a great tension. There's a great tension between governments, between government and, and uh, Aboriginal groups. Uh, the Assembly of First Nations and so forth over over what the right balance is between the maintenance of the reservation system and the implementation of a wider regime of property rights and and I mean ev everyone has anecdotes uh, akin to what what you're offering. Mm -hmm. um, the The deeper question is what is the nature of citizenship? in the 21st century for Canadian Aboriginals. Uh, I mean, John A. Macdonald, in his time, uh, was about as, as progressive on these sorts of issues as anyone would be in his time. He's held up today, uh, particularly because of, of a few comments he made in the 1880s uh, 
in terms of trying to clear natives out of clear aboriginals out of the way of western settlement mm-hmm. uh, and some of the things he said were were pretty pretty harsh some would say racist though. and oh, and inappropriate and certainly by our standards racist remember the 19th century the term race essentially meant ethnic group mm-hmm. now we can we can we can say that yes he's speaking yeah. in in racist terms mm-hmm. but a lot of people a lot of people spoke that way right um so to sort of cherry pick sir john a is is in some ways unfair. On the other hand, he's the prime minister. So ultimately he has to be responsible for these policies. Mm-hmm. In our day, I mean, I was in Victoria in the summertime. I walked right by the city hall in Vic- downtown Victoria where Johnny McDonald's statue had been until about two weeks earlier when it was literally attached to a crane and pulled, and pulled out of there. Um, now, a lot of Canadians find that offensive, but for some... He, he, he represents, he is sort of the target of a whole congeries of problems that, that today seem to be problems that cannot ultimately be solved and the roots of them stretch back to this period. And if such policies hadn't been enacted then, we wouldn't have such problems now. So there's a great deal of, of pent-up frustration over the fact that these kinds of issues, the things we've been talking about, yeah. can't be solved. So let's, let's, let's blame Sir John A. for the fact that these problems are still with us. Yeah. In historical context, it doesn't really work that way. So, I mean, there's, there's this aspect, you know, where we talked about the poor man's historian, where they're just kind of like, cherry picking oh i've got enough information without getting the full context there's another aspect to history um that i can i think i can summarize by referencing have you ever heard the series called the politically incorrect guide Two? and they've got like i don't know something like 45 or 32 books is the um i became aware of it because uh, someone i follow is tom woods he wrote the first one which was called politically incorrect guide to american history and why i wanted to bring that up was you know, there's an aspect of, I almost want to say, the first iterations of a, a historical writing or summary of a war is so biased to, you know, Americans writing on World War II versus, you know, Germans writing on World War II. You're going to read two totally different books. But, you know, there, I would argue there's so much propaganda to some extent. And kind of where I think this is related is, you know, there's, there's shows out there like... Um, Hardcore History by Dan Carlin, who does like a five-hour podcast on on one war or one chunk of history. Um, there's uh, another one called uh, Historical Controversies that I listen to through the Mises Institute, where they're retelling it, trying to be as honest as possible, giving the full context. And so I'm curious on, you know, how much, you know, you see that as important to to read you know, timely history, but also far enough removed to remove the opportunity for propaganda or to diminish the amount of propaganda that shows up in, in any sort of historical writing. Yeah. I mean, it's an old, it's an old trope that, that, you know, the victors write the history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that 
that's always, that's always a fair criticism. So, for example, when the first great biography of Sir John A. Macdonald was written in the 1950s by a historian at the University of Toronto in those days named Donald Creighton, uh, two volumes, a uh, magnificent piece of, of scholarship, but very little to say about Canadian Aboriginals. <laughs> and certainly nothing of, of, of uh, a critical nature. So here we are 75 years later talking about Sir Johnny MacDonald. And then the last biography of Sir Johnny MacDonald, which came out about 10 years ago, Richard Gwynn, um, he has a little bit more to say, as he should. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a little more critical. And yet it's not as critical as the way in which Sir Johnny MacDonald is now being portrayed. So is there a balance to be struck there? Is, is there a right way forward to be struck there? Is MacDonald as bad as his now ardent critics would say he was? Or was he better presented by Donald Creighton in the 1950s by basically ignoring anything that now resonates with his critics? Somewhere in the middle of that, you find you find a proper contextual reading mm -hmm. for Johnny MacDonald's views of Aboriginal Canadians, the government's policy about uh, how they should be handled, uh, what the larger national questions were at the time. Uh, I can understand, I can understand the, the sensitivities, the frustrations, of a contemporary audience denouncing Sir John A. I mean, the Canadian Historical Association a few years ago uh, had an award called the Sir John A. Macdonald Award. Mm -hmm. They've gotten rid of it. Yeah. They've gotten rid of it. Do, we, do uh, we still have a Sir John A. Macdonald Day, January 11th? Is that still? It's still there, although it, it, it never was much acknowledged, and okay. now probably less than ever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, on, on this sort of question, like just about every other historical question, uh, if, if, if you do not do the reasonably hard work of digging into the context for the events in question, you can't really understand what was going on. And offer All, proper criticisms. And offer, offer criticisms that are fair. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so in the John A. case, it's extreme to pull down the statue and doesn't really allow for a proper debate. Sir John A. Macdonald was a great debater. He, 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 could, he could sort of defend himself, in a sense, if he were asked to, or, or you could defeat him in debate, which may be maybe contemporary critics would be able to do, but in a sense, by symbolically silencing him, mm -hmm. uh, I think that opportunity for, for a fuller historical contextual understanding is lost. And I think, I think that's what's lost when these kinds of issues um, shoot skyward in the way they do 
with without being able to to really discuss them and understand them in their in their context okay and uh just a final question uh just in light of our cultural context today in the name of reconciliation uh what it looks like the social justice movement is trying to do is rewrite history or maybe even erase it is that possible uh no history will always out um i mean truth 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 and reconciliation is is an honorable end uh certainly this was found to be the case uh in south africa uh to try to deal with the legacy of apartheid and certainly uh, truth and reconciliation in in canada over the way in which aboriginals have been have been treated but i think in the same breath in the same breath it must also be remembered that 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 the ways and means of history can only be understood contextually. And certainly in the case of, of the way in which the government acted towards Canadian Aboriginals in the 1870s and 1880s and afterwards has a particular kind of history that isn't well served by simply finger pointing in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, I've definitely learned way more about our first prime minister than I ever thought I would. No, uh, I mean, I was like, you know, when he brought it up to me, I'm like, I think that's our first prime minister. Let me just Google that to double check to make sure I'm not ignorant as ignorant as I think I am. Um, but, you know, so I, I've definitely appreciated this. I mean, it gives me more confidence to go, OK, I know where I stand on this issue um, for for any of our listeners that want to reach out to you and maybe have any questions related to Sir John A or, or anything else with regard to history. What's the best way for them to to get in contact with you? Uh, by email, by email at uh, bfaught, F-A-U-G-H-T, at Tyndale, T-Y-N-D-A-L-E dot C-A. Great. I'll, uh, I'll make sure that's in our show notes page so that people can find it. Yeah. Uh, thanks Thank again. you again. Yeah, thanks again. Uh, by the way, you're my favorite professor, history professor. Oh, that, well, that, <laughs> that makes coming in uh, well worth it then. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, having me on, I've I've uh, I've really enjoyed the experience. Thank yeah. you. All right, thank you. But you heard me. Does that make sense? Madden and Mitchell Media.